I haven't tried my bass drum setting here. I'm going to try it real quick. Okay, sure. Check, check, one, two. Check, check, one, two. Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Belowski, and I'm a second-year MPP student. This is the first of a couple episodes on some pretty monumental legislation taking place in Virginia this session. For those who don't know, Virginia has a part-time legislature, meaning the House of Delegates and State Senate have a set amount of time at the beginning of the year to pass laws and govern in Virginia. The two pieces of legislation to which I'm referring are death penalty abolition, which we'll talk about next week, and marijuana legalization. So to talk about legalization, we're first going to talk with co-host Ben Teese, who's a producer here on the show and who's applied policy project has to do with marijuana legalization. Ben's always fun to talk with, and he's one of the realest people that you will ever come across. Then we're going to talk with Chelsea Higgs-Wise from Marijuana Justice. Chelsea's an activist and organizer around Richmond. She hosts a radio show that's available as a podcast called Race Capital. That's capital with an O. And chances are, if you've read an article about legalization in Virginia, Chelsea was probably quoted. So I'm excited for you all to hear her perspective, because I think she brings great clarity to the equity issues involved in legalizing marijuana. I think it's worth mentioning. I find the policy considerations here fascinating. I think there's way more that goes into legalization than people think. It's actually an incredibly complicated issue. The fact that it is illegal at the federal level throws some really tough kinks into things. But my point is you don't have to agree with legalization to appreciate the policy problems that come along with it. So I hope you all will enjoy these conversations. I know I did, and I know I learned a lot from them. So let's get to it. Let's meet Ben. So Ben, just uh, how is your final semester going? Uh, yeah, as we were just talking off air, um, it, as with everything right now, it's up and down. But I think, you know, overall, like it's going great. I mean, I, um, you know, I'm getting married in September. Like, yes, uh, planning for a wedding at all is stressful. Planning for a wedding during a pandemic is stressful and planning for a wedding while you're trying to finish up graduate school in a pandemic is stressful, but like, it's still a blessing to be able to plan for a wedding. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, finishing up school is really stressful. Like I just can't wait to be done, but also like, um, and you know, I don't, we don't have to go through my whole personal story. I don't know if that's entirely relevant, but like, it's taken me a lot to get here. You know, I, um, started at Batten in 2018, had like a really serious health crisis, had to withdraw, took an entire year off, had medical bills, back tuition bills. Like I was working 60 hours a week. Like all I wanted to do was get back here so that I could, you know, get this degree. And so obviously you have your moments where you're just like incredibly frustrated, you know, or as we've learned from Penick, when we say we, we really mean I, obviously I have my moments where I'm incredibly frustrated <laughs> Uh, about what's going on and, you know, would rather just play 2k or what have you. But on the whole, like, I just, um, I am having a really great semester and just really thankful to be doing all the things I'm doing. I will say the one thing that is, I still haven't been able to figure out, um, is the job application piece. That's just like something I've, you know, I've never entered into the real job market before. And so interacting with that is like a whole other thing in and of itself, but you know, on the whole, like, I know I'll be all right. It's just, uh, you know, it's a lot to 
put out 10 job applications and know that, you know, maybe one of them might come back with like a good answer, you know, but again, overall, it's all a learning process. It'll get there. And on the whole, like just really thankful to, you know, even be in this position. That, that was really beautifully said, like, seriously, um, you know, cause I, cause I think it is and the fact that everything is, is virtual, you know, that you don't have that, like, um, the human interaction to kind of keep you, you know, th- those times in Garrett where you can kind of, you know, commiserate with your classmates and people who truly like understand the same struggle. And so, um, and by the way, is all the wedding planning, how, how does, is that all over zoom too? Uh, yes. And, um, a lot of it is over zoom or phone call. Um, uh, and then there are, you know, weekends like this past weekend where I go to DC where my fiance lives um, and we'll watch out of things we spent last night, uh, you know, write little notes on the back of save the dates, um, which in the beginning is great. But then when you're on like number 30 and you've got 20 left to go and your hand hurts, you're like, all right, this is like a lot less, like these people are just going to get a less nice note or they're, you know, three people are going to get the same, are going to get the same message. Like they're not going to talk to each other. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, so it's, you better, you better, it's, exactly. <laughs> uh, when they get to the wedding, they're gonna be like, Oh, what did your save the date say? But no, I mean, yeah. So it's like a combination of both. Well, you mentioned you came to Batten in 2018. What was it that brought you to Batten? Yeah. So, um, I graduated from VCU in 2017. Um, and was initially thinking of, uh, getting my MPH at VCU as well. Um, I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. I'd gotten an undergraduate degree in exercise science and knew some folks who had gotten a master in public health and thought, all right, like that sounds like roundabout something I would want to do. And then I, you know, applied to and got into the program and it just, you know, became clear that it wasn't for me. Um, You know, great folks over there, but it wasn't the right fit, but I still almost went because I was fearful of, uh, what I was fearful of, um, I guess, jumping into a year off from school, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do or what I was going to do. Uh, but just after, you know, conversations with a few folks that I trust and respect it, you know, became clear, Hey, like, you know, this, if you're not in, you're not in, like you shouldn't do it. And so then I took that year off at the same time, you know, my fiance, again, not to talk about my personal life too much, but my fiance who I met at VCU, had graduated in 2017 as well and had gone on to Batten. So I, uh, you know, was up visiting her for um, weekends and basketball games and the like, uh, hearing her talk about, you know, the first year, the first semester, the 48-hour project, et cetera, all the while I'm trying to figure out my own stuff and what I want to do for graduate school. And so basically, long story short, um. I eventually just came to realize, Hey, like everything that she's saying she's doing and everything that folks are telling me that I would do, you know, from admissions and whatnot, it, you know, this sounds like actually this is the right fit for me. And so then it just, you know, became a process of applying and, um, kind of hoping and wishing, but I mean, from a more substantive point, I would say I've always been really, um, kind of like a desire without sounding too, I don't know, high-minded or whatever. Like I've always had, um, 
a deep sense of empathy for others, care for others, and a desire for justice, not like the rah-rah courtroom justice per se, like although that's certainly a part of it, but just for people to get the shot that they deserve, um, you know, to be allowed to flourish without like impediment by systems that they have no control over. And then in that graduate year as well, I should mention while I was just looking at schools, I was also working in different communities where those sorts of things were really present. And so that entire year, these themes that I had always, again, like justice, um, equity, fair chance, things like that, that I had always kind of felt internally and just been a part of my life, I began to see uh, played out in the real world or the lack thereof, I should mention. Um, And then while I was seeing those in my work life, I was understanding what Hannah was able to do with her degree and the things that you learned at a place like Batten. And it became apparent to me that in order to affect change in the community that I was working in, I needed to better understand the systems that caused that community to be the way that it was in the first place. And so that is why ultimately I chose to go to well, and, and so we had a really good conversation with Chelsea Higgs Wise, who uh, helped found a an advocacy group called Marijuana Justice a couple of years ago. And she has been uh, very active in kind of organizing and advocating around this issue. And she, you know, you asked a good question. You know, she's someone that if you're around Richmond, then you kind of, um, you know, you, you start to hear about about Chelsea and her work. And, and she, if, if you read any article, I would say, uh, especially in Richmond, like in the Times-Dispatch, the Mercury, about legalization and, and what's going on in the legislature, you'll see Chelsea quoted, you know, chances are, you know, uh, somewhere. And so uh, she has a really interesting background, has a master's um, in clinical social work. And, um, you know, the, the thing is that, that I hope people understand is legalization. It's not just like, okay, it's legal now. You know, <laughs> there, there's this is a really uh, significant um legislative effort, especially for a part-time legislature um, where they have 46 days to kind of figure this out. And so there's a lot that they have to consider. And Ben, to your point, it's going to happen. And all of the consequences of legalization for good or bad are going to come out of the decisions that the um, House of Delegates and the Virginia State Senate make on the criminal justice side and also because they have to actually stand up an economy because it's still illegal you can't you know grow it in north carolina and distribute it across the line everything has to take place in virginia so literally like all of the consequences are going to come from these decisions and that's why it's it's um you know there there are really deep considerations that they need to make sure that they're kind of um thinking through crossing their t's and dotting their i's but it's it's a tough position they're in, I would say. Yeah, the bill is over 260 pages. I think it's like 263 pages, which is a lot of words. And, you know, as yeah. we've talked about already, we'll talk about in the interview, it's not just, again, it's not just legalizing it. It's not just setting up a market for, you know, growers to put seeds in the ground, um, transporters to take this, you know, the plants from this place to that place. And then for retailers to open up and sell it to folks like, um, you know, there's what to do with the tax revenue. And this is where from the associated sales, and this is where a lot of the equity discussions come into play and that you'll see with Chelsea and the major- what the majority of her work has been on. Um, and 
uh, you know, if I can just give like a quick second on why equity is important, because I imagine that could be a question and why it's such a big consideration what we're doing is, you know, it's, it's really simple. It's the idea that the criminalization of weed, uh, marijuana and other, you know, drugs has disproportionately affected one group of individuals. So black Virginians are right now, as of this moment, 3.4 times, according to the ACLU, more likely to be arrested for possession than their white counterparts. Um, and as I've kind of mentioned, like that arrest isn't about just that particular moment in time. There are all these deleterious effects that can stretch across not just that person's life, but their family's life and their community's life. And so if we want to do legalization in a way that's fair, in a way that can um, remedy some of those harms, because basically by legalizing, we're effectively saying that it should have never been criminalized in the first place, then we have to think about how we're going to spend the money that is going to come from the legalization. Uh, and so we'll talk about different funds and things like that in the interviews, initiatives, the whole entire thing. But I just think it's important to know, like, from the jump, like, why is equity important in the first place? And why is it such a big part of the conversation? And we will link, by the way, to uh, you mentioned the ACLU and JLARC. JLARC has done a, a really big study around this in Virginia. We'll link to that and also to Chelsea's work. And she's written some op-eds um, and also, um, you know, she hosts a podcast or a radio show that is also available as a podcast. So we'll link to all that in the show notes. But without further ado, here's our conversation with Chelsea Higgs-Wise. So Chelsea, you know, we're in the middle of session we're in the, still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you're advocating for some legislation that is pretty monumental in Virginia. And so I just wanted to start just simply, how are you feeling? Oh, wow. It's a real mix of emotions, right? It's excitement. It's anxiety. It's, um, you know, it's, it's feeling a lot of feeling of gratitude because we've worked really hard to get here and, and to have a quote unquote seat at the table. Um, and so, and right now it's all in the legislators' hands, right? So you've kind of given over your baby to, to some folks, a group of people, and, and now we'll see where it goes, but lots of mixed feelings. So can you, um, considering like, can you talk through just, um, your background, like how you came to organize this issue? As you mentioned, you've had several different lives. And so I'm curious to just hear about a few of those and how ultimately that brought you to this place. Um. I guess an anecdote, it feels like, you know, having been in Richmond for five years, you know, you, uh, if you listen long enough, you eventually start to hear about certain people and you're someone who, who comes up often as, you know, just being present in the community and someone that folks would listen to. And so I'm curious to know, like, at least from your perspective, how that came to be. Yeah. Um, so I have actually been a clinical social worker in the city of Richmond, the Richmond area for about 10 years serving folks that receive Medicaid. And so it may seem I that I've been in the public world and a lot of people have been saying my name, but that's only really been in the last few years when I decided to move to a more macro 
um, sort of lane to serve my community because prior to I was a clinician, um, actually diagnosing people with psychiatric disorders, giving treatment plans, working with their caseworkers, working with people all over the city to provide services. So also serving on boards like the Richmond Behavioral Health Authority, which is the local CSB or community service board. So if people aren't familiar with that, it's basically the DSS, but for mental health. And so I've also served on DSS boards. I've been very active, um, particularly because I did not feel as a clinical social worker doing the one-on-ones that I was doing enough or having a real impact because I've also always been a lover of policy. And when it got down to it, the, po the policies that were serving individuals were just not doing it. And so I moved into a more macro sense in 2015, which is a really political time for everyone. I really got brought into the work through Sandra Bland's story. She's actually a sorority sister of mine, even though I've never met her, Sigma Gamma Rho, Sorority Incorporated, shout out to my sorors. And, um, and, and I really uh, then started to just support community organizing and nonprofits and finding places in Richmond that needed more support from there, I really worked um, to to get on the radio and and to start having the narratives out there, and not really realizing I was I was moving into media with my organizing. Um, but I've really have always just been someone that can commentate and analyze because of my clinical background. Uh, so we started Race Capital, which is a weekly radio show that you can catch on WRIR LP 97.3 FM. And you can catch us on every podcast platform, wherever uh, you love listening to your podcast, Race Capital. And that's capital with a O because we like to take our narratives to the Capitol Square, right? Um, and, and then, you know, after listening to folks and then also incorporating my own experiences, um, in 2019, as many people remember, we as a Commonwealth were looking at the 400th commemoration of when the first Africans were trafficked here to the shores, and that was right here on our state shores. And um, unfortunately, in that same year of February, a lot of organizers refer to it as Blackface History Month, because that was the month where our, our current governor's yearbook, medical school yearbook, came out with a blackface and a person dressed in a KKK um, costume, uniform, whatever you want to call that. And, and from there, there was this big commitment, promise to Virginia about restitution, reinvestment, getting rid of Jim Crow. And a lot of us saw on the horizon, because we're paying attention to national organizing and, and narratives, that cannabis marijuana legalization was an opportunity to use that issue to address all of these promises of reconciliation, of incarceration, of criminal justice, of reinvestment. This is going to probably be the only time in our lifetime for everyone where we have a real opportunity to direct direct funds back into communities that we're always saying there is not enough room for us in the budget. Everything that we ask for, they say, is just not enough money. And this is very specific money that should be targeted to, to communities that's been disproportionately impacted. So we came together in 2019 and started Marijuana Justice as a Black-led organizing nonprofit, particularly to work on repealing the prohibition and repaying Black communities. Um, from there, we worked on the decriminalization laws in 2020, 
we really kind of saw the inside workings of how Virginia legislators were legislating around the cannabis plant, particularly when it comes to black folks. And if you're talking about any enforcement about marijuana, then you're talking about black people. So um, we, we've really kind of dove into there, but that's the long kind of short story of how we got here. Um, and, you know, from my own personal experience, I come from a family that has had our own struggles with the criminal justice system around nonviolent drug offenses. And we're also lovers of the marijuana as users. And it's something that we've seen that is a medicinal. It's something that is a mood lifter. It's something that is an anxiety calmer. And it's also something that's been used to criminalize and disenfranchise some of the closest people in my life. So this is what brought us to the work of marijuana justice. So in beginning to advocate for this issue, uh, I imagine you've had these conversations. What do you say to people who aren't users, but are open to and recognize the fact that the current system that we have isn't working. It's really interesting how you talk to every person, right? I really like to know a little bit about someone, even if it's just how they consume their media, whether that's audio, video, what do you read? Like, you know, what are you into? Um, so this way I can usually recommend a piece of content that they can consume that would reach to whatever lens they're coming from, because it's not all about users at all. It's not actually about access or consumption at all. And, and that's the point so that I can point them to some type of media historical piece that really starts us out around at least in the latest 1944 in New York. And when we're really talking about when the law started to criminalize black folks and when the medical community and very specifically came out in large numbers and, and up until the 70s, 80s to say, we are doing this wrong. We should not be making laws that where police are involved. This is a medical issue. This is a medicinal plant. There are many reports from 1944, and uh, particularly in New York, all the way until 1971, 74, a report that Nixon himself actually um, had come out. And then I went back and said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't mess with it anymore uh, because it didn't say what he wanted it to say and what it what it said was is we don't need to be having law enforcement in this at all this is going to target disproportionately black people and now we know very specifically that even nixon's uh, office came out and said this was always a war against black people it was never a war on drugs so i find a way to get that information in their minds to get data in their minds about right here in virginia that Black people are arrested and enforced four times more likely than white people. In Richmond specifically, we're six times more likely. Um, and all the places up in Arlington, they're 14 times more likely to be convicted than white people. So it depends on where you are. And um, if you go to the JLARC report in the appendix right there, it's really accessible. You get to it quickly. It has every district, locality, municipality in the Commonwealth and how their disparities ranks on black folks and white folks. So you can find your area and how your policing was done that way. And so I, I what I do when I when people ask me and, and want to know why they should be involved or care about this, even if they you know don't ever want to consume. I find a way to get that information about, hey, how it's been used historically, how it's been used currently, and, and the impact 
specifically the collateral consequences of evictions, of loss of employment, of not being able to get in school. Um, I'll tell you right now, over uh, the summer of 2020, I heard from Virginia Poverty Law Center at least three times a month because they were saying landlords were using past and old marijuana convictions to evict people that were having trouble paying. Virginia uh, tenant and landlord laws allow the landlord to evict you on any past crime, even if they've allowed it to stand and you stayed there for years. Well, you know, and COVID, landlords were just waiting for a reason, looking for one. And that's what the reason many people used. And we all know that Virginia's been number one across the nation for evictions. And so it's not about cannabis. It has nothing to do with the plant. It's particularly about people's lives, the the financial impact that that has had, and why right now we have to look very directly of stopping the criminalization and paying people back if we're serious about prioritizing legalization as a way to redress the harms. Chelsea, I, I think that's an excellent kind of segue to, to try to, you know, if if listeners aren't, aren't fully like immersed in this, to kind of set the stage for legalization in Virginia. And so, as you mentioned, you know, marijuana, it's, you know, there have been decriminalization efforts, you know, over the last, um, some legislation passed last year, but um, it's currently illegal at the federal level. And so that carries with it a ton of ramifications. And so when we talk about legalization, I feel like we can kind of break it into two components. There's the criminal justice component and everything that kind of comes from all of that, um, you know, the, the impacts, the, the disproportionate impacts that are there. But even that isn't as straightforward, right? I mean, there's still, you know, the legislation they're trying to figure out, you know, once it's legalized age limits or, you know, how much is okay to have and like driving a vehicle, et cetera, those kinds of things. But then you mentioned the commercial aspect. And because it's illegal at the federal level, interstate commerce regarding marijuana cannot happen. And so when you're setting up a market, everything from growing to selling has to happen in Virginia. Otherwise, it's illegal. And so, you know, it it is just this huge undertaking that the legislature is trying to do right now. And so my my question is, when, when you're thinking about uh, an issue like 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 this and how how vast it is. How how do you go about kind of prioritizing the issues that you're advocating for when these legislatures just have you know so much in front of them? Sean, I really appreciate that question, and it always goes back to the name of our organization, which is Marijuana Justice. And really quickly, folks always ask me, what's the difference between marijuana and cannabis? And why didn't why did you name your org marijuana? And, and to be very honest is that our priority is to bring justice to the word marijuana in the way that it's been criminalized because that's how it's impacted people. And even with a legal quote unquote cannabis market, what we've learned across the United States is they are still criminalizing people for marijuana. So my priority and our priority is always a bring, about bringing justice to that criminal justice piece, because no matter how inclusive our commercial market is, it actually doesn't matter if people are still losing their entire livelihoods over it. And, and it really, really, it's really important that people start understanding some of the nuance of that criminal justice piece to understand that how without us really dismantling that, there is no inclusivity in the commercial market because we're supposed to be including people that were harmed. Well, how are we gonna do that if we still harm ending? So I have actually been recently quoted in a Richmond Times article that I've already received some pushback on that the legislators have not yet been informed enough to necessarily 
legislate on this entire piece and then they need to focus specifically on the criminal justice parts and we can come back to the commercial parts next year particularly because we've already said that we're not going to start a commercial market until 2024 and i've gotten a lot of pushback on that because they're like people want their cannabis and they want it now and it's i'm going to be real honest it's usually white folks um and 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 what i'm and the reason why you're not hearing it from black folks is because in California, they're actually saying they wish they had not legalized it because they are doubling their police forces. They are locking their youth up twice the rate. And we have to understand, particularly in Virginia, that the people that are most targeted by arrest and convictions are people that are between the ages of 18 and 24. Well, guess what? Virginia increasing the smoking tobacco age to 21, that means that legalization is also going to be for 21-year-olds. Y'all, if we're still targeting people with new crimes around marijuana, and there are a ton of new crimes, I hope I have time to tell you about a couple of them um, with marijuana quote-unquote legalization, then we, we really have to realize that we're just not doing this justice. So um, I would really love for people to to remember that my priorities and our priorities should be around how are we actually legalizing it not how we are selling it and there is an illicit market it's always been there y'all that's never been our problem our problem has been that we only enforce the illicit market on black people and if we make new crimes, guess what those new crimes are going to be on black people while a whole bunch of white folks are making profit. And particularly, you mentioned the interstate, uh, interstate commerce and none of the licenses that they have proposed have to be Virginia owned, except for the social equity ones. So as we are legislating right now, they're basically inviting multi-state operators to come in, make a bunch of money and hey, social equity folks, y'all can have the Virginia ones. And then we look at who is even qualified for social equity and it's very, very narrow. Um, so to answer your question, very long answer, but my priority in our priority should always be on the people that have been disenfranchised, that have lost their lives. And when we're legalizing it, remember legalization has nothing to do with the commercial market. It actually has everything to do with removing illegality from the law. You know, I think you have been, this issue doesn't just pop up overnight, right? And so you mentioned you formed Marijuana Justice in 2019. You mentioned the JLARC report, which I think you were pretty instrumental in kind of helping to, to kind of get that legislation into place. And can you kind of reflect on kind of the all the, the groundwork that had to be laid in order to, to get Virginia to, to having this conversation? Oh, thank you so much for that question. I would love to pe for people to also read um, an editorial piece I put in Style Weekly. That's a local paper here in Richmond, and I I really described our our work with the decriminalization and 2020. Remember, y'all, that um, Virginia decriminalized marijuana. When everyone thought about decrim, they thought, oh, this is going to be great for us. And folks like Marijuana Justice and ACLU, as well as Rise for Youth, came in. We saw the bill, and we were like, oh my gosh this bill actually creates a lot more crimes. And uh, so we immediately saw that. And then we saw the social equity pieces that were coming in a form of a study is what they called it, but it was actually just a working group that the governor appointed people. And then they would sit around, they would do no actual research and they, they would create the marijuana legalization laws. So before we legalized it this year, I want everyone to understand, and this is a, a very common practice in the general assembly that they, Virginia assembly does a study first. 
that's because y'all, they don't listen to nobody but themselves and they always want to put it to a study first. So if you're new to this advocacy world and you want a, a, an issue to come forward, go ahead and just get ready to get your study done first and make time for that. And that's what we did last year. And we tried to get in with this study, quote unquote study, which was just a work group, which was appointed by the governor, which was uh, brought forth by Sharnell Hearing, which was also a little bit in with Senator Evans' bill, but I, I want folks to know that uh, the administration works very directly usually through the house for cannabis laws and uh, what we notice is there's no wording of actual social equity in the bill for the study and we were like hey knock knock that's a problem long story short I'm going to be very honest with everyone is that the JLARC study was never on the table and it would not have been without marijuana justice and ACLU they kept they tried very hard to keep us out of the work group we advocated to be on there they said no if you look at the cannabis quote-unquote specialists and experts they're all medical providers and I'm going to say normal is a, pre a medical provider they are halfway funded by medical providers like right here in Virginia it's a very specific unique chapter of of normal and they've always testified against us they've always kind of been on the other side of us unfortunately and the reason why we have marijuana justice i tried to join and, and organize with normal before 2019 and noticed that racial equity social equity was not a priority and um i had we had to go and fight for this with jennifer mcclellan and and because it was not something that she had ready to propose and we said hey they're proposing this decrim they're proposing the study and it's not has nothing of social equity and they're they're pushing us out and jlark is an independent body they do bipartisan studies they're one of my favorite groups in the entire general assembly i'll give a shout out to delegate sally hudson who put me on to them and said hey if you want some real data that the general assembly will have to listen to get a jlark study and that's what we did thank god it, it went through it would have only gone through with a vet like jennifer mcclellan to be really honest no one else would do it no one no one and uh and i'm so proud of it because this year it is the main piece of data that is being used with the legalization they call in the jlark experts every single committee they refer to that jlark report all of the time and it's been our standing ground for when we were not invited in the room that we had that jlark site to stand on so it was a lot of work to to help them to study what to look at and and then even just to get the bill proposed because unfortunately the administration didn't want any Thing on paper specifically about social equity. Yeah, I would really encourage people to read the JLARC report if they have any sort of interest at all in these issues. Um, as you know, someone who's doing their ma master's thesis on this entire topic, uh, I've spent a lot of time with the JLARC report and it's surprisingly readable. Um, and uh, but I want to so just that comment, but I want to go back and drill down on something because I think it's important for people to understand. Um, is can you discuss you know a little bit more concretely about how even with legalization there can still be new crimes and people can still be punished because i think someone listening to this could hear that and say oh well like what 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 do you mean like you're letting people buy weed you're letting people possess it you're letting people grow it like how can people still be getting in trouble and how could it end up you know ultimately damaging equity concerns as opposed to helping them Great question. So I always, the litmus test for a quote unquote legalization bill is always how they treat young people. So a, a point I, I didn't quite finish earlier was that we have to look if, remember the targeted group for marijuana arrests and convictions are 18 to 24. 
and under 21 or all the college kids, right? And half of that 18 to 24 group, <laughs> it's going to be illegal for, um, we have to realize that that group is still going to be targeted. And if we're going to now make it legal for adults with a new value system around the plant, right? Understanding that Virginia cannot ever fairly enforce marijuana crimes, even on youth, right? It's always going to be black and brown youth. Um, we had to look really specifically because we saw in other states that uh, college, you're 22, you pass a joint to a 19 year old, you just got a felony. But is that justice? Does that sound like legalization? Right? No. So uh, we, we had to fight really hard to, to make sure that you're not on probation if you get possession, right? That's not that, that you don't have a ridiculous fine. Um, so that's the first litmus test. And, and that can be a little hard for people to grasp because the moral stuff with young people and weed, but continuing to, to, to really sit with that, I, I tell people to follow Rise for Youth. But one, a few things I want to talk about that really do hit with people when they start to hear about the new crimes, right? So I'm going to give a couple of new crimes that are proposed in this quote unquote legalization bill. The number one uh, piece is the uh, quote, open container law. Okay, we're calling it open container because what they did is they took the alcohol law and basically just switched the word alcohol for marijuana. So what does this mean? So now you are at your house, you got a brand new pack, you've opened up your pack of weed, you smoke some, well now you wanna go to your friend's house. You've maybe got a half an ounce on you, you seal it up, you put it in your glove compartment and you think you're about to take a ride to your friend's house. Now. None of that sounds illegal, right? In the world of legalization. Let me tell you how this could be illegal for a black person. A police comes by, pulls you over. Now in this new legalization bill, all the police has to do, because last session in 2020, the Virginia General Assembly outlawed it for the odor of marijuana to be able to be a reason to be searched and seized. So they can no longer say they smell marijuana. Well, let me tell you what the Virginia General Assembly did to continue to recriminalize marijuana. They said, now only thing the police has to do is say they see a green leafy substance on the bottom of your car, anywhere in your car. That's all they have to say, y'all. And, and then they have to say, well, now they have reason to search your car. They go and find that half an ounce of bag in your glove compartment that's sealed up, right? It's, it's open, but it's unburnt. Well, now you have possession of marijuana. And because there's also a presumption clause in this new crime, uh, if you are caught with possession, whether you are a pedestrian or in your car, the officer has discretion to say, oh, well, now you're also under the influence. Your eyes are red. I can look at you. So this presumption of anytime you possess marijuana, the officer can now say you're also intoxicated. So this now this very innocent drive to your friend's house has been caught with the officer saying they happened to see something green leafy somewhere in your car. They did this search. They looked in your glove compartment. You had a, a regular amount, but now all of a sudden you're getting a DUI. That right there is going to happen. And so when you're asking people, hey, how did all these increase of DUI crimes happen in Colorado or things like that? Well, it's because they literally created new DUI crimes around marijuana to target certain people. Um, so that could, and by the way, if you had a passenger in your car and, and it was in the glove compartment because it's an arm's reach of your passenger, your passenger is also getting a possession charge. So what we're basically saying is that any marijuana in your car is essentially illegal and there will be a way, a way for them to charge you with this. What our solution to something like this is to say no new crimes. There's actually already a crime, a, a 
a law in the book. It's called the DUI, but you don't need to make new provisions like, hey, the officer can say they see a green leafy substance or they can, this presumption um, of, of uh, con consumption just because you possess. And so we would say no new crimes, keep it as it is. If they're really doing reckless driving, charge them with that. If someone is intoxicated off of pills, you don't have to do, we don't have all these extra crimes around narcotics, right? It's just a DUI. So we already have those laws, no new crimes. So what's the, what's the current state of play right now? Um, so, I mean, my understanding is that we have our house and our Senate bill, um, major differences between the House and the Senate bill is that I think the Senate bill would allow uh, legalization of possession starting this summer as well as expungement and then would kick a vote on the legal on setting up the market to next year as you mentioned the House bill does not have those concerns or considerations um but beyond that, like what, what's the conversation? What does it look like things are moving towards? Like just what would you describe as the state of play on the legislation itself right now? Sure. So Marijuana Justice, ACLU, and 24 other groups have signed onto a letter that we sent Governor Northam and the legislators. And it spells out our demands for this year. And our number one top of priority is if this is a bill to really address the harm that's been done, then we need to stop the harm right now. And we need a July 1 react, uh, reenactment clause or a July 1 uh, clause that says that we will legalize possession up to an ounce. Um, that way there is something that is legal. Even with decrim right now, y'all, it is illegal. You will get a ticket. What means with that ticket? It could go on your credit if you don't pay it. And usually for Black folks, any interaction with the cops is going to be more than just a ticket. So we need to just cut out the policing interaction altogether. And the only way to do that is to actually legalize it for simple possession. And that's what we're demanding we do up to July 1. Um, the only bill that has that is the Senate bill. Thanks to Jennifer McClellan, because again, she's been she's read the JLARC report and she was a, a, a pusher on that. The House, um, unfortunately, Charnel Herring is speaking kind of through the governor right now, um, and, and they're not, they don't want that without being able to continue to connect our liberation to their profit, which is just not, uh, it's not that rec reconciliation promise that they gave us in 2019, nor with this piece of legislation. Um, so I'd really encourage everyone to find that letter. You can go to any of our socials, which is THC Justice Now, um, and you can go and read that letter. You can go to our website, marijuanajustice.org. And really quickly, I'll just go over the five points, which is number one, repeal the prohibition now. Number two, take no action that will further criminalize another generation of youth. Remember that youth prisons make just as money, much money as adult prisons, y'all. And so just because they legalize it for adults, if they do this again for youth, this did not work. This is not a great thing. Um, ensure that impacted people and communities have access to the legal market. We didn't talk too much about that, but I'm always willing to, and everyone can catch our Canna Hour updates every Saturday at 3 p.m. We talk to people from all across the country that are doing this as well as give Virginia updates. And you can catch those replays on our YouTube channel at Marijuana Justice just to see um, some of the conversations and how we got here. And number five is that we need to implement implement meaningful specific reinvestment to communities harmed by prohibition. Right now, the governor is only offering 30% to the reinvestment fund. 
that's why I say that these legislators must not understand this 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 problem because we need at least a majority of the tax revenues going to this reinvestment fund that's going to be funding the loans as well as the community grant uh, packages and reinvestment. So uh, we need we need more than thirty percent. We deserve all of it, but we need at least a majority. And so that's why someone like me says, hey, let's maybe pump the brakes on the commercial market on how we just make everybody profit. And let's really take a deep dive on how we set my people free, y'all. Do you know the anxiety of just seeing blue lights? Like, do you know that over 85% of marijuana arrests and convictions come from traffic stops? Do you know traffic stops are the most deadly interactions for Black folks? Do you know that there will be no way for people, shelterless people and people in public housing to consume their marijuana through smoke? They'll have to be outside. The next thing you know, they're going to be arrested and in jail because public consumption is going to be illegal with this bill. Y'all, there's nothing legalization about this except for the fact that we are providing an avenue for more capitalists and maybe one or two Black folks to make millions and billions of dollars. And so why marijuana justice is here is because we want to make a little disruption and get in the way and truly bring harm reduction to what we know is going to be a long fight to continue to really <laughs> ensure that we get our coins and not more cuffs. Chelsea, I think, um, you know, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the, the commercial and the social equity piece there. And, you know, um, I, th I think first off before that, though, from a common sense perspective, right? We have a part-time legislature. They have 46 days. Um, you know, that if this is going to be legal down the line, or if it's going to be available for sale in 2024, then it should be legal now, right? And so just from a common sense standpoint, it's just, you know, the July one, tackle that problem, come back next year, figure out the, the commercialization. And so just from a common sense standpoint, and can I just say too, for folks that are listening, I know this is a, a huge concern that July one would include personal cultivation as well for everyone. So this is important. And it's going to be really confusing if we pass legalization, but we have to tell everyone, by the way, does it matter for three more years? Right. That's exactly right. That, that's, I mean, that's just kind of common sense, right? If we're going to, if this is going to be where we're heading, then what, why are we keeping, you know, why is, why are we perpetuating the harm? Why are we keeping, keeping on with it? And so, um, but on the, on the commercialization piece, a couple of things I wanted to, to dive into with you. And I think you would be able to break this down um, very clearly is um, one of the things, the differences in the house and the Senate is this concept of vertical integration and so vertical integration kind of takes you back to business school, right? And so for, for, for folks who don't know vertical integration, it's if you are controlling, um, you know, multiple parts of the supply chain. So if someone was completely vertically integrated with marijuana, you're growing it, cultivating it, distributing it and selling it. And you control all of that. The House's bill uh, prohibits that. The Senate's bill allows it but they have to pay like a million dollar licensing fee. And can, can you elaborate on, on why that that's important and this vertical integration um, concept is, is important from, from an equity standpoint? Great. So I think um, context of where we are is important. So reminding or informing everyone that Virginia is number one for business and we are 50th for workers. So Virginia Commonwealth loves a little business. Okay, we are great with corporations. And that would be no different for cannabis. 
And that was another important part of this JLARC study is to really see the impact of vertical integration for the inclusivity of social equity and the people that were harmed, which are obviously going to be smaller operations and have less capital. And so what was really great that came out of the JLARC study is that we saw if we were to ban vertical integration and you gave a really great uh, example and description of that. And I remind folks the reason why they call it vertical is from seed to sale up and a more diverse and more opportunities would be a horizontal integration, right? Where literally it just means more opportunity for people. Otherwise you have all four of those licenses from seed to sale under one name, right? And that's the monopoly structure that we've seen all over the Commonwealth that has never actually done great for the communities that those corporations are in either. So it was really important for us to do this vertical integration um, with the Senate piece. We are still pushing them to ban vertical integration. Uh, we do understand that as we wait for a couple of years for this to be open, the question is like, hey, well, how do we access this? Should there be some sort of access? Can the medical provider providers do that? And to let everyone know, the medical providers are all set up as vertically integrated. Um, and so this was what we've also seen. And, and other states is that there are times where those operators, because they are already set up, when the commercial market opens for adult use, they kind of come over and are able to take out the industry because they have all the capital, they know the business, and of course they score the highest when it comes to the licensing. So this is by banning vertical integration, we would have more opportunity for more beneficiaries as well as for an opportunity for it to be Virginia owned. And, and it just, not to be another corporate structure. Um, so we're still working with the Senate. I think they're actually going to be amenable to just banning it. The $1 million could come in um, in the next couple of years to allow the medical operators to provide access to flower and to, and to the adult use commercial market and then have a sunset clause to where it would stop when adult use would come in. That $1 million, which I think is a bargain, y'all. If you have a license for one of these medical dispensaries, I mean, they're worth billions, okay? So you literally got a coupon. Um, and that, But that money would go into a social equity incubator so that the social equity licenses would able be able to have capital loans to be able to have their operations up in business day one. And day one equity for us is really important. If we open these doors up in 2024 and ain't no social equity folks and black folks up there, you're going to hear Chelsea Higgs Wise and Marijuana Justice Voice because it's going to mean that they didn't listen to us. And, and while I got you here for a couple minutes about how I know that we're in trouble with that is a couple of things that have to do with both sides of the bills. Um, Number one, the way that we are defining the disparately impacted areas. So if you go to that JLARC report and see all the ways that different areas have been impacted, there are going to be certain areas that are going to get more grants because they were impacted more. So we have to define those areas and we have to define those people because the way that uh, the Constitution says, and it actually came out of the Supreme Court decision of Richmond, that we can't say race or gender for preference. And so we have to basically describe the area and describe the person. What's happened across the country is that they do these definitions really poorly. And it ends up going, the license ends up going to gentrify Johnny, who was never actually really impacted and not to real black folks, Latinx folks that deserve the, the benefits that come with a social equity license. Um, so number one in the applicant, they've said in the Senate that all you gotta do is hire 10 impacted people and you can qualify for a social equity license.
That to me sounds like sharecropping. It sounds like Virginia's oldest working body. Remember, we are the oldest legislative body, which means we have the most experience at exploiting people. And that's what we're doing. This particular loophole was also used in Illinois. And the reason why the first round of applicants had zero African-Americans and only people that were employing African-Americans. So number one, we need to strike that. The House was able to strike that. We, we appreciate them. Um, one thing next I'm going to say, especially because it's a policy folks that I want to approach very gently. There is a criterion in both bills that says if you are a graduate from an HBCU that you can qualify for a social equity license. That sounds really nice, but that is not social equity. And I will say that as a black person. People will be like, Chelsea, you didn't go to HBCU. You're a hater. That may or may not be true, but let me come with some data. Number one, HBCU graduates are actually 32% higher income earners than Black folks that graduate from PWIs. The way that the bill is written, it says you have to go to a Virginia HBCU. Well, one of our Virginia HBCUs, Hampton University, actually produces the highest earning Black folks in the country. So we're about to write in what I call a loophole to a group of people that probably sound like they do not need the financial benefits that are going to come with social equity licensees. Um, and a loophole to a number Number two, what's actually happening, and Sean, you said it earlier, that, that this bill is split up between criminal justice and commercial and regulation. What's happening is that the legislators are not putting that together. And the main thing that connects those together is expungement. And what I've been trying to tell people right now is, hey, y'all, the way that the bill is written and the way that automatic expungements are going to happen for people is that they're not going to be ready in time for the social equity applicants to have their expungements for when they apply. And now that we've got this HBCU loophole, what's going to happen is that the HBCU graduates are going to score higher than someone that actually was impacted with the arrest and conviction because they're still going to have it on their record. And then the first round of applicants are going to go to who? The HBCU graduates and not actually anybody that was impacted. And you know, what I tell folks is I understand HBCU folks have, have been impacted by policing, but there is still a very long list of people that deserve a chance at this. We're really only allowing people with misdemeanors and very, very small amount of felonies. That's not going far enough for expungements. And again, for you to qualify for social equity, you will actually have to be somebody that qualified for expungements except for this HBCU. So the further that we can expunge people with more felonies, we should be extending the list that way, not, not to the way the people that weren't actually affected. So let's work on our expungement pieces. But I mentioned that the legislators aren't thinking about that because right now I'm also telling legislators that people would actually have to petition so that they could have their records expunged before they apply. These are, these are part of the nuances that I'm telling folks, we might need a little bit more time. Let's just free my people and we can talk more. Yeah, the um, the expungement piece is it's you know kind of a pet issue for me or an obsession um, because you know I think someone could say oh expungement great like let's do it but there are considerations within that is it automatic or do you apply I think at some point there was a difference in the two bills I don't know if that specific fact has changed um, oh that's that's gonna go down in conference and and it's and those. The people, uh, marijuana expungement got tied into the larger expunger conversation for the, for the best or the worst, you know, 
Yeah. And so, and why is like application dangerous? Like the people who need expungement the most don't have the access, well, don't have the access to the resources to be able to properly apply for it. They don't know, they don't have the institutional or community like knowledge on how to interact with those systems, the whole deal. And so what you end up having happening is like the people who need expungement the most aren't going to do it. The second thing that I think about, and um, I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to try and keep my, I don't know if I would call it a rant, but I'm going to try and keep this brief, is, uh, you know, expungement by the state in and of itself isn't complete. Um, you know, something that I've read a lot about is uh, in other states like California, Illinois, that have already legalized, legalized is um, like state records can be expunged, but folks might still lose out on jobs because when you apply to a given company, a given company could have paid for a, a background checker who has old records on file that they use to check people that might still show that, um, that might still show that conviction in your past. Uh, and so, you know, one thing that I would be curious to see is, you know, if and how the state addresses that. I don't know if they can, but I think it's a consideration. Yeah, they are considering it. And, and because those are the, the private vendors that do those types of record pools that they're able to contract. And so they are putting laws that those private vendors would also have to erase these types of expungements now. So they're going, they're trying to go through the process to get every layer, but we know that's not always going to work out, but they're, they are attempting to. Great. Yeah. Uh, so how do you think this is going to play out? Um, you know, we, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. How do you think this is going to play out? They're going to push this through to conference and then they're going to assign certain folks to go to conference. Normally that's the patron and a couple other people and conference is a secret location where they go and negotiate and no one has any idea what happens and how they got to those answers. And we all just got to come out and pray that our stuff that we really wanted is still in the bill. And it's not also some ridiculous stuff added in there that they compromised on to keep our stuff in there. So uh, we'll wait on that, and um, then we'll see after that if the governor has any amendments and if we even want it to go to the governor, um, if I'm being honest. Chelsea, the last question we ask all of our guests is, uh, what's a leadership lesson that you've learned that you wish someone would have shared with you as either an undergraduate or graduate student? Most of your leaders don't know what they're doing. So if you feel like you should be leading the room, then you probably should be. So take lead. Or, or leave and create your own room. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Chelsea Higgs-Wise for joining us. And thank you to Ben Teese, who was performing double duty as co-host and producer. And thank you to Ben Feldman, who also helps out with production. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.